People always ask how I balance my family life with 400 shows a year. I'm just doing what I love with the people I love. It's my magic life. I like Wes Isley. I like everything about him. All right, guys, this is a podcast I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. We have a legend in magic, and uh, we'll get into more of that later on. But Kevin Spencer, when I was up-and-coming kid, I only did $5.99 magic tricks I got at the store. I saw Kevin Spencer do this huge David Copperfield-esque illusion show with the backdrops and the lights and everything. And I was just in awe. This dude has been an inspiration to me throughout my career. I love this guy so much. He still talked to me when I was a nobody, and he talks to me today that I'm a semi-somebody. This guy's awesome. (laughs) Everybody, it's Kevin Spencer. What's up, buddy? How are you? Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this. When you first asked me, I was like, this is going to be really cool. I can't wait to do this. This will be fun. Well, dude, I want to know all about your career. So all I know is outside looking in, and I guess people understand that, but you don't really, because people, you didn't follow my career tooth and nail no i didn't i only know you you were on the cover of magic magazines you had this amazing show i have a dvd i bought at back of the room sales of you in tokyo and this whole magic life kind of tour Mm -hmm. we have a television show now kevin that follows my family around doing 400 shows a year that's kind of like that tokyo thing it follows us around loading in loading out driving to and from Uh, very cool right because that's what everybody wants to know how do you make it work so we just make a show out of that right and then, um, and then all of a sudden, you just fall off the magic scene, and you're doing this other like, I don't want to say the thing wrong, but in my mind, it's Project Magic type stuff. We'll get into that more. And if I said something wrong just now, I apologize. But and then you just you're not doing that anymore, and you're doing this and a whole 180. I want to get into it. Let's get into it. All right. So how'd you get? Where'd you get started in magic? So, like most of us, saw a magician when I was a kid. Uh, First magician I ever saw, I was five on television and uh, can remember saying to my mom, when I grow up, I'm going to be a magician. I grew up in the South, Mississippi, as every good Southern mother does. She patted me on the head and said, you can do whatever you want to if you put your mind to it. Um, They bought me a magic set when I was eight. I learned all of those little tricks, elementary school, junior high school. And then I actually kind of flipped a switch in junior high school. I was still really interested in magic, but I really loved playing the piano. And and I dove deep into into studying piano, classical piano. Uh, And I I ended up getting a really great teacher. uh, And I I actually went to college with the idea that I was going to be a concert pianist. That was my career goal at that point. I went to school on a music scholarship. Uh, and it was in college that uh, that that the magic bug just kind of reared its its head again. Um, I, I went to school young, which was a, kind of a good thing, bad thing. Um, but I had an opportunity. I went back home and and Doug Henning was performing. I was 18 years old. I was a sophomore in college. Doug Henning was doing a show in Maryville, Indiana. And I had this opportunity to buy tickets. And so my best friend and I drove up, it was about an hour and a half, 
We drove up to Maryville, Indiana to see Doug. And now I'm pretty excited. And I can remember writing a little note that said, Dear Mr. Henning, would like to do this for a job. Any advice you could give me would be appreciated. Signing my name and giving that to an usher. And this is the Holiday Star Theater. It's like 3,300 seats. It's sold out. Guy looks at me and he said, all right. So about 10 minutes later, he comes back and he goes, look, I don't know what to tell you, kid. Um, I gave it to somebody backstage. I don't know if Mr. Henning's going to get it. But if you want, what you can do is go to the stage door at the end of the show. And if he comes out, that would be great. And if he doesn't, then, you know, there's really nothing I can do. So we get through the show. And of course, it's an amazing show. I, we get to the show and I make it around to the backstage door. And there are probably 200, 250 people there all of whom have sent up little notes because it's magic clubs from Chicago and from Gary and, you know, Lafayette, they've all driven up to see Doug Henning and there's big groups of them and they've all sent a note up. And I thought, okay, so this is, this is crazy. I've got an hour and a half drive. We should probably go. It's already late. And I was literally, literally had my hand on the door, pushing the door open when everybody got really quiet because somebody had come out from the backstage area. And this guy came out and he just looked and he goes, is Kevin Spencer here? And I turned around and I said, that's me. And he said, Mr. Henning would like to see you in his dressing room. And I, I was, yeah, I was that stunned. And, <laughs> and so was everybody else, right? Everybody's like looking back, like, who is this little skinny kid? I was like five foot two and about 115 pounds and, and and I kind of, it was like the Red Sea. They all just kind of parted like this. And I walked through the middle of this group, went backstage. And I spent about two hours talking to Doug. I met Debbie, talked to them for her for about 30 minutes. She went up to, uh, to go to bed. Uh, I talked to Doug for a little while. And then Doug said, look, I've really got to go. I got two shows tomorrow, but you don't have to leave. These are all of my people. A ask them anything you want. And then he looked at them and he said, anything he asked you, just tell him. And wow. it was the beginning of a really awesome relationship with Doug. He took such an interest. And I don't know why. I have no idea what it was, why he said my name, why, you know, I'm, I used to joke and say, maybe he just put all of our things in a hat and he pulled one out and said, this is who we're calling back. I, I don't know. All I know is it was the beginning of a really great relationship. And it was because of my relationship with Doug that I also met people like Jim Steinmeier and Willie Kennedy and all of the connections because Willie was Doug's illusion manager and Jim was one of Doug's creative consultants. So through that kind of experience, I, I, I got a little deeper into the magic world, but I grew up in rural America you know, two hours from a magic shop, two hours from any magician. So I learned everything that I learned about magic by going to the library and checking out books. And then when I was in junior high, I saved my money and I bought the Mark Wilson course in magic. And I knew because I loved like the bigger stuff, my dad is a carpenter and we would go out in his workshop and my dad would help me build these things. And what's really cool is even now, I still have some of those original smaller props that my dad and I got to build together, which was kind of cool. 
and 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 that's where it started. I, I in the middle of college, I changed my my major from music to psychology. You know, a couple of reasons why. Um, psychology is the degree you get when you're not really sure what you're going to do with the rest of your life. So you get a psych degree. I and thought I, it was religion. That's what she has. I thought it was religion. <laughs> I think the religion might have been a little more practical even than the psych degree. I, but <laughs> I did psych and uh, was just really intrigued, which I think plays full circle into what I'm doing now. But that's how it started. I changed my major to psychology. I worked my way through college doing magic shows. And when I finished school, it just seemed to be the natural thing to keep going. So a couple of things I'm doing uh, in, in the 90s, I really started pumping up and trying to buy everything I could buy at a magic shop. I didn't have much money. So I'm buying, you know, little $5 things off the rack, anything I could, decks of cards, decks of cards, $5 thing, trying to get bigger, a die box. I had to save up for something like that, right? Yes. I sent my mom to the store and I said, they did a pom-pom trick, mom. I really want that trick. Can you, if you're going to the store, please buy me that. I'll pay you back for it. This was $45. I, it wasn't a $5 trick. And I'm like, well, I'm a magician now. I have a real prop. But I mean, this pom-pom, this pom-pom, this pom-pom, but how are they connected? That's my routine. Yeah. Then I saw Kevin Spencer do it. And I'm like, a real magicians do it. That is a real prop. But Kevin talked about going to, I remember this vividly, Kevin. This is 30 years ago, dude, at least. And he talked about going to Australia and they had this weird thing. I totally remember your routine. But see, I didn't learn about Doug Henning until after his passing. He wasn't on television in my youth, right? He was already gone. So once he died, I'm like, who's this guy that died? Who's this guy on the cover of Magic Magazine? Who is this? Who is this? And then I saw that he did the pom-pom trick and that probably influenced you. I learned the pom-pom trick from Doug. There you go, full circle, full uh, circle. Yeah. But it was an Australian routine. What was the yes. routine? What was the- you're, you're so right. I would talk about how, you know, we got to travel a lot. One of my favorite places to go was Australia. And I think I would even say something like the land of kangaroos and koala bears. Uh, everybody spoke English, so that was really good. And I would talk about- after one of our performances, an older man met me back at the dressing room with a little box. And he opened that little box and he pulled this thing out. And he said, here, take goosebumps to America. They'll love it. And then it just kind of rolls into it from there. I love it, man. I never forgot that. Thank you. That was that was very magical to me, dude. That's you so, I just can't believe you even remember that. That's pretty awesome. I'll tell you that th- there's some truth to that story. Uh, I was in Australia and when I, I was there for uh, touring for six weeks, but the first two weeks of that tour, I was really sick. So when I actually landed in Melbourne, I went straight to the hospital and I had uh, double pneumonia. So mm-hmm. the first, the first 10 days of tour, we were, uh, we're just kind of all put on hold. But during those 10 days, I was, I I didn't stay in the hospital. I was released, but I was like under house arrest. And I met this really amazing older magician, Australian magician. And I wish I could remember his name, but he called and he said, oh, you know, I hear things aren't great. He said, but if you'd like, if you'd like, you can hang out. And so I would, he would literally come and pick me up and then I would go hang out at his house and he would just show me magic. 
And I would stay there for three or four or five hours and then he would take me back and I would rest. And they'd beat on my back and make me drink all this kind of medicine. And after 10 days, I was good enough to kind of get back up and do the rest of the tour. So that older man that I met that had the little box is kind of a real, is a real guy. Wow. It's, wow. Yeah, it's kind of cool how, you know, we weave these stories of like what really happened. And yet we kind of create this whole magic around them. And that makes your show unique. Nobody else can steal that really. I mean, cause it, it wouldn't be them. So um, even with comedy, it's the same thing. If you can, everything you can in a, in a comedy show, it can weave your personal story. People can't steal your joke because it's not theirs. It, no, that there. really happened to him, you know? But what um, do you think? I, I think that's one of the big, of one of the big crisis challenges within the world of entertainment as a whole, but really within magic. Why would we want to steal somebody else's routines? I mean, what is it that 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 happens with within comedy or within magic where you can't look at something and say, how can I make that my own? What is what's the story that I can tell that's that's going to be my story in that trick? This ties into last week's episode so well. I had Matt Donnelly on. Matt Donnelly now works for Penn and Teller, and he has a he has an improv background, and he just started Magic like eight years after working for Penn and Teller. And I'm said I'm amazed that you're not a Penn and Teller clone, and I couldn't get the words out. And I've been thinking about this all week because I want to tell Matt what I'm really trying to think. I think the reason he's not a Penn and Teller clown is because he already knows who he is. And I think that he has that improv background. Mm. When we're kids, when I worked at the magic shop in the nineties, so many magicians were verbatim lines in their show of what Copperfield did two months ago on the television show. Cause they'd watched that video over and over. They thought they had to play that music. They thought they had to say that line and any, any joke Copperfield said, they thought they were okay to say it. Cause now it's, publicly known and it's yeah. like no that's not right no but it's easier when you're older because you know who you are you yeah. know we tell the story about my family being on the road 400 shows a year i talk about my marketing and and my logo and my teacher said make a logo people can read mine looks like scribble but it says west eisley magic man so it makes sense it that's all true things i think it's because you're older and you come into your own i I got that off my chest now. I've been thinking about that all week. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the biggest problems with anybody that comes into entertainment, but especially within magic, we are so influenced by the people that we see because it's not it's not the songs that you sing or the, the or what you're going to play on a guitar or on a piano. You're seeing a trick and and there's this thinking, I think when we're younger that when you see the trick, that's the routine. That's what it is. And you don't think about the fact that that person has probably spent an enormous amount of time coming up with that routine. And so we see and we go, oh, so that's what you do with that trick. And so you just do it. But when you do start to figure out who you are, who you are as a person first, humanly, and then who you are as a performer and who you want your audience to see, Doug gave me three pieces of advice. And I held on to these uh, through my whole career. He said, Take acting lessons, not because you're ever going to be an actor on the stage, but you need to be comfortable in the words that you say if you want your audience to be comfortable with you. Take dancing lessons, not because, God forbid, you should ever dance on the stage, but if you're not confident in the way that you move on the stage, the audience is not going to be comfortable with the way you move on the stage. 
And then the last thing he said, and I think this is the best advice, it's the advice I give to every young magician who asks me, what do I need to do? Doug said, always be yourself. Because an audience will recognize if you're a phony. And if they like you, they will like what you do. And if they don't like you, there's nothing you can do that will make them like you. So from a, from really early on, I just kind of wanted, and of course, there was a lot of hinting influence in my show early on, but I just really wanted to kind of embrace who I was as a person. What do I have to bring to the stage? And I think you nailed it when you said, when we're younger, we don't have as much lived experience. We don't have as much story in us. And as we get older, those stories just kind of naturally become a part of the presentations that we share with our audiences. Or at least they should. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, and then, yeah, I guess there's some, I mean, I still belong to the magic clubs and still frequent them often. And you get a guy in his 40s that gets into a magic club and does it just like he saw somebody did on Penn and Teller. So it's still a learning curve, but I think it's easier for somebody that's been doing it as long as we have to pick up a new trick and it's totally different than how other people do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I would say the cool, oh, sorry, did you have a question? Nope. Nope. Go ahead. Go. I was going to say, I think probably one of the, my favorite parts of, of our, our career is um, as we, as we got into that place where we had some real credibility within the markets that we were in. We, we started straight out of college in the college market. That was the first place that we landed. And, and that was just kind of a fluke thing. I was living in Texas. Uh, that's where I moved after college because I didn't want to be in Chicago. It was too cold. Didn't want to be in New York because it was too crazy. And didn't want to be in LA because it's LA. So the, the next place to go was Dallas because Dallas was just starting to kind of develop this really rich entertainment, performing arts kind of culture. So I moved to Dallas. I roomed with my old college roommate. He was down there getting a television degree. And my wife, Cindy, was a diamond consultant for the Zale Corporation. And she was engaged to my roommate, Stan. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I moved out. And I get a job managing a clothing store in the mall. And on the weekends, I'm doing magic shows. And I'm trying to figure out how to put this thing together. So Stan is in school. And he's, because he's a, a television film member, ma major, he's running a camera for a show. And he comes back home and he goes, Andre Cole is going to be on campus. If you'd like to go, I can get you some tickets to the show. So it's like, yeah, yeah, that would be great. So he gets tickets for me and Cindy. But he's engaged to Cindy, so I'm just kind of tagging along. He's running the camera to, to, to video Andre's show for him. And Cindy and I have seats together. And of course, it's Andre Cole. It's a great show. So during that little intermissions section, uh, Cindy and I are kind of sitting there. And I was like, wouldn't it be cool to like be able to perform on college and university campuses? This would be pretty awesome. And this guy in front of us turns around and he goes, what do you do? And Cindy's like, oh, he's a magician. And she starts talking to him and he goes, well, so you're interested in performing on college campuses? And, she, and I said, yeah, that would be really cool. And he goes, well, there's this organization called the National Association of Campus Activities. And I'm the director of student activities here at this school. And so he introduced me to this whole 
NACA entry point for my career into the college market. So that all kind of unfolded over the next um, over the next few years. As a as a as a young single guy living in Texas, uh, during a time when uh, every Texan had a diamond ring on their hand, you know, it was just the thing, and it was usually a big diamond ring in the state in the the form the shape of the state of Texas. Well, my hands are not; I don't have big hands, and there's, there's no way I'm putting like this giant Texas ring on my hand. But my wife is a diamond consultant for Zale Corporation. So now they're looking out for me, a diamond ring. Long story short, I end up buying this ring that comes in. It's a beautiful men's ring. It's five stones. It's a quarter of a carat. I pay a wholesale price for it. And they say to me, you should get that appraised so you can put it on your insurance. Okay, fine. So they take it back. Well, when they, they get it back, it's not a quarter of a carat. It's a carat and a quarter. It's come into inventory mislabeled. And so it's worth a lot more than what I paid for it. And I said, oh, so do I need, do I need to pay something different? And they're no, no, it's a it's we sold it. That's the way it came in. We sold it. So now I have this, this beautiful men's diamond ring that's got five stones in it that are total weight are a carat and a quarter. And for anybody that knows anything about diamonds, they're also VVSI ones. So very, very slight inclusions. All of these stones are usually set aside for, for women's engagement rings. You don't get five of them in a men's ring. So when I got started in this whole thing, I would take that ring down to the pawn shop in Dallas and I'd pawn it and I'd get some money. And I'd run out and I'd do one of these college conventions, one of these NACA college conventions. And I would try to make as many contacts as I could. And then I'd come back and I'd work two or three jobs so I could go get that ring out of Hawk. And I'd get it out and it would be time for the next conference. And I'd take it to the pawn shop and I'd pawn it and I'd get enough money to go and do another conference. And then I'd come back and I'd work these jobs so I could get it out. I still have the ring. I don't wear it anymore, but I still have it because it's, was such a, you know, a, a really important part of the way that we got started. And our college career just kind of took off. Uh, we happened to be in the market about the same time as the amazing Jonathan and Pat Hazel. Um, uh, Stuart and, McDonald, you mentioned your name. Yeah, yeah. And Stuart McDonald, Stuart, yeah. Stuart and Lori were, were there. And Stuart and Lori were the only ones that were really kind of doing illusions. Uh, everybody else was doing like comedy kind of magic. And and Cindy and I came in with kind of a different approach than Stuart and Lori were doing. And so it it just kind of, it clicked. You know, how you just feel like you're in the right place at the right time. It was that. And it just clicked. And over the next um, few years, I, I won Campus Entertainer of the Year twice. Uh, one year I beat out the Indigo Girls. So that was kind of cool. Um, I know that, that really dates you right there. It's like Indigo girls. Who are they? No, that's awesome. dude. That's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So, um, and the show just kept getting bigger and bigger within the college market. So we started doing these shows in student unions and student centers. And then as the show started getting bigger and we started adding these illusions, we did our first national NACA showcase in Nashville, Tennessee at Opryland. And 
you've got, you know, 20 minutes to perform in front of 3000 college students who are going to determine your future for the next couple of years. You know, you we're backstage, we're praying so hard, you know, we're just, <laughs> and you're terrified, your adrenaline's pumping and you're trying not to get sick because you've got just so much adrenaline in your system. And we did that first NACA national showcase and we ended with metamorphosis which happened to be probably our strongest illusion in our show. Um, I'd gotten a lot of tips on that one from Doug Henning. And so our switch was crazy. But when you've got that much adrenaline pumping through your body, it's really crazy. And we remember making that switch and the audience just on their feet in a, just in a roar. It was just like, oh. And we wrapped it all up. We packed it away and we're running to the exhibit hall. And Cindy looks at me, she goes, how do you think it went? I'm like, I don't know. I guess we'll find out when we get to the exhibit hall. And we got to the hall and we booked the next two years of our college career off that one NACA show showcase. And we, we were booked every day. It was like a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday. And it was just boom, 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 boom. We were exhausted at the end of those tours in the fall and the spring. But we booked the next two years of our tour based on that one college uh, national showcase. Wow. That's awesome. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. That is amazing, dude. That's really good. cool. It was cool. And then we started, that's when I kind of reached out to Jim after that, uh, reached out to Jim and said, you know, I'd really like, I'd really like to start working with you. And I will never forget this. He looks at me, you know, we're on the phone and he says, um, not yet. Oh, ouch. Yeah. And I said, oh, oh, he says, not, not yet. He said, almost, but not yet. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, not in an arrogant way. I'm thinking to myself, does he even know who we are? Does he know what, what does he mean? Not yet. Yeah. What does that even mean? Cause you know, you're, you're just doing your thing. You're not trying to be known by anybody in the magic. You're just doing what you love, what you want to do. And when he said, not yet, he said, I'll, I'll know when you're ready. And so it was about a year later that he called and he said, Hey, you ready? Oh, and, uh, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty uh, awesome. And then we got ready for our second NACA showcase. And at this point now, we had some bigger illusions in the show. And this one was in Boston. And it wait, was real quick, real quick. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm curious about just when we first started doing illusions, I passed a little note to Rick Thomas in Vegas on our honeymoon. And I'm like, what do you do? What? Do, how do you do it? Because he gave us a great bit of advice. He said, buy one new illusion a year because you don't want a warehouse full of stuff you don't do. That's and right. you can always bring in stuff from future years. What was your, I'm just asking, we're on the air, I know. But what was your, did you put 10% back in the business? What was your back in the business rate that you put in? Because your show was huge with backdrops and lights and lasers and yeah. So it kind of really developed into that. I, I think our strategy was more along the lines of one, I think it circles back to what you said earlier, knowing who you were as a performer, because when you know who you are as a performer, you also know the kinds of illusions that you want to do. I made I made two bad purchases of magic in, in my career. 
You did um, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> illusions that I that I thought well, illusions that I still love. One of them was interlude, which was just a beautiful illusion. And I really thought that would be a great piece for us. We bought it, we practiced it, and we bought my wife and I both, after like months of working on the thing, we both looked at each other and we went, This isn't us. You know, we were, yeah, it was just, we got caught up in the fact that th this was a really cool illusion, but it wasn't us. And so we turned right around and sold it. And then the second one was a, a, a stage a magic trick that I'm not even sure anybody performs. It was called Puppet Theater. Beautiful piece of magic designed by Jim Steinmeier. I think I might be the only person that ever had one made, but it was a really great piece of magic. Just wasn't me. So I ended up selling it to a friend of mine, Travis Winkler. I don't know if you knew Travis. Travis oh. passed away a couple of years ago of cancer. Yeah. But, uh, just he had this just really great kind of show and puppet theater was just a pretty uh, his style. And so I called him and said, hey, I got this trick. And he goes, I'll take it. So <laughs> so those were the two big, bad magic purchases that I had. I think what Cindy and I did is we always just kind of looked at what we wanted what we wanted to do, where we wanted the show to go. I had such a vision of what I wanted this show to be. I wanted, this is always hard to kind of put into words. I knew that magic had the potential to move an audience in the same way as powerful dance or beautiful theater or incredible music. I knew that it could move an audience intellectually and emotionally in the same way that those other art forms did, but not many people were doing that. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take magic and capture it as an art form, not as a novelty, there's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted to do it as art. I wanted it to be Broadway meets rock and roll on a stage that moves an audience. And so that was always our vision. That's why you saw the backdrops and the lights and the hazers and just all of that stuff, because I wanted that Broadway feel to the show. So that was always kind of our under. Uh, the undertone of our show. How do we take the show to that next point? And because for us, it was all about the theatricality of what we did, still being myself, but it was about which illusions lend themselves best to that theatrical sort of presentation. So did you ever have, because we have it all the time, like, hey, we want to book your biggest show. We want to do it here. And then they put me in a cafetorium are they put in the breezeway of the college? What, did you have that? Or did you have a strict writer that they actually read? Because we've, we've had it where the audience is, you can't, they can't see us. Yeah, no, yes, that's ridiculous. So I will say that, you know, we, when we were in the college market, we had, we still kept our kind of club cabaret show that had a simple one page sort of writer. And then, the illusion show only got booked out because it was, you know, in the day it was kind of pricey for colleges. So it only got booked out for, for special events, parents weekends, little sibs, homecoming, welcome back, those sorts of events. And because we were playing those events, we always got 
to be in the nice space. We were always in the Performing Arts Center or, or the auditorium. So we never had to kind of fight that battle of, oh my gosh, you know, you just booked our biggest show and this stage is eight by 10. And right. you've got two lights right here pointing down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you this, every time you get into you don't have, we still did, we had a mall show. We were gonna produce Santa and literally we had a stage. Oh my gosh. It was four by eight it was for our eight. show. I was like, oh, our show's gonna have to be down here and we're just gonna pass stuff up. It was bad. She had to hand stuff up to me on the stage and then pass it down to her. I mean, that's oh, oh, yeah. No, we've been in those situations. My wife has there. definitely been in those situations where it's like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's about, about size of stage and everything. But by the time you get there, there's no time for them to bring out more stage or find the rest of the stage. It's, oh my goodness. Yeah. You just have to <laughs> deal with it and be like, okay, great. You know, the cool. thing is, and what you just said, it you just have to deal with it, right? This is how you grow as a performer. You walk into those situations and you say, all right, the audience doesn't know that they haven't met the needs of my contract. Right. But I still have to deliver a show that this audience is going to be happy with. So right. what do I need to do to kind of suck it up and say, what do I need to change on the fly? What do I need to kind of, I think that's the beauty of the challenge of being a road show. You, it is different, man. You get to a place where you can almost perform anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and we have to pick our illusions that way as well. Um, you probably know Massanutten Resort that's local to oh, yes. us. I've been working there since 2003. But I mean, people are on the sides of the stages. So that eliminates a lot of the illusions. But if I can pick an illusion that works there and then I do it 14 weeks out of the summer, I can take that on the road and do it anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's been a blessing and a curse, but it's been a blessing because I have that logistic to do. You know, we don't pick illusions that you can't be viewed from other angles because you never know. You get that mall. We had people entering the mall behind our show. Right. <laughs> They put us at the opening of a mall. Yeah. Oh my gosh. People behind us, and and yet there they were. There was no curtains, <laughs> no anything. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I, I think that's. I think this the most challenging situation I've ever been in like that was. Um, so with the with the program that I'm doing now, before I kind of fully went over to this, I was still doing the show and, and, or a show and doing this work. And so one of my biggest projects is in Russia. And, and I, you know, it, it breaks my heart that I haven't been the, have the opportunity to go back since the war, but I, I've probably been there six, six or seven times. And the last time I was there, um, no, the time before last that I was there, I was actually, in Ekaterinburg at the Yeltsin Center, the Yeltsin Presidential Library. It's this really beautiful structure in Ekaterinburg. And we have an, a consulate in Ekaterinburg. And they had brought me in to do some work with some of the organizations that serve people with disabilities. But they also wanted me to do a show at the Yeltsin Center representing the U.S. Embassy in, in Russia. So it was a big deal Christmas time. So the German embassy had done something and the Italian embassy had done something and the Austrian embassy had done something. We weren't on really great terms with Russia when I was there that time. 
And they came to me, they had booked this big room in the Yeltsin Center. And the lady that was in charge came to me and she said, can you talk to the consulate general and see if he can move into a smaller room? And I said, okay, is there a reason why? And she goes, yeah. She said, there's no way you're going to fill this big room because of the relationship between the two countries right now. And I said, oh, I said, okay. I said, so what size is the other room? And she said, it's about 300. I said, well, wait a minute. How many did the Germans have? And she said, well, the Germans had about 1,100. Well, how many did the Italians have? Well, they had about 1,300. How many did the Austrians have? About 1,300. I said, well, how big is our room? She goes, it's about 2,000. And I said, can you get me on a television show? And she's like, sure. So they got me on this morning show with these really two really perky guests who also spoke English. And I was I did like a 20-minute spot. I was only supposed to be on for five, but we just kind of clicked and we went. So by the time the show rolled around, we had like 2,200 people in the Yeltsin Center. And now they're packed on the floor. They've gone up to the second level. They've ridden the, the elevators up to the third level and the fourth level, and they're looking down. And now they've crammed into the elevators and they've gone up the elevators so they can see down to the stage. Oh my goodness. And kids are on the stage. Like they've come on the stage now and they're sitting around the front edge of the stage. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm gonna do here. Oh. I am like totally surrounded, even by steepest angles from the top. I can't hide any, you know, it was just total exposure. But that's where your brain kicks in and your experience kicks in. And you're like, okay, what do I need to do? And how do I need to do tr this trick? And how do I need to adapt this trick? And you just make it work. But the experiences that you guys are having, that's what gives you that ability to do that. You just kind of go, all right. And, and let's go. I'm sure I'm sure other magicians have it, but they don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, that's part of show business. Right. You oh. have that. Right? Yeah. I'm not, it's not above my ego to say that wasn't a fun show. That was crappy. <laughs> but here's the other thing. And we try to do it the best we can. I mean, we're I'm doing my job, right? right? But I told Natalie at the end when the lady and I said, I'm so sorry that it didn't look professional. I was doing this and I'm apologizing to the lady. I did the best I could with what we had. And she said, Honey, it was great. She said, we're just happy that Santa could read this year. He couldn't read the night before Christmas, the year before. They hired a Santa that was illiterate, and they gave him a book and said, go ahead. He couldn't read. So just the fact that Santa could read this year, they were happy. I could have done anything. <laughs> These are, you don't think about that. Yeah. We're just thinking no. about us. It's all right. us. It's all show. Our stage is small. Yeah. Santa can read. That <laughs> was great. <laughs> So uh, I just, curiosity, we go to Mexico every year on vacation. We always go to Cancun. We love it down there. What translation app do you use when you go to these other countries? You haven't learned fluent Russian. I don't. I usually work with a, I, well, I do have Google Translate on my phone. And I think that's probably the one I use most often. But when okay. I perform in those countries, I, I work with a translator, with an interpreter. Okay. All right. Google Translate. Yeah. I'm always looking for a good app. I just want to talk to these people. I want to have conversations. I hate doing bad yeah. sign language. Yeah. And yeah. I, want to love... I want to show them magic. I want to have fun with the natives. You know, I, I like having fun. Yeah. I'm, let me look real quick. I'm, I'm sure that's Google, that it's Google Translate. Oh, no. It's just called Translate. It just looks like that. Okay. That's better. But 
but it looks like 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 that little guy right there. Yeah, I think I have that on my phone. We yeah. have that. Yeah. And I use it I use it a lot. But with my with my work, I usually work through a translator. I speak Spanish. So any of this of this Latin American countries or Spanish countries, I can usually get along pretty good. Um but the rest of them and then there's some languages that you just the first time we did a Europe tour, we started in Spain and we did like six shows in Spain and then jumped over to Italy and did five shows in Italy. And translator, my my Spanish translator was awesome. She was probably like 28, really perky, matched my personality on the stage. She wanted to be behind the curtain, like doing the voice of God sort of translation. And I was like, no, 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 no. You need to be with me. You need to be with me on the stage. You need to match my energy. And we clicked after the first show to the point that she would kind of sit off to the side and we would banter back and forth with each other and she would translate. And it just it just brought these audiences into the show. And then when we jumped to Italy, our translator was a government employee. She was like a legit, you know, UN kind of translator, no emotion. All she did was translate. And after our first show there, I remember being in the lobby afterwards and this uh, family came up to me and in great English, they said, we had such a good time but you really didn't need the translator. She was awful. <laughs> and the translator oh. was standing right next to me. <laughs> golly, golly. I keep Ouch. wanting to learn Spanish, but technology keeps improving. By the time I take time to learn it fluently, I'm not going to need it. I'm just waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting for technology. Yeah. yeah. Highly so, recommend jump speak if you're looking for a good like language. Apps. Well, oh. we homeschool our little girl, and we said as a family we were going to do it together this year. And time, we yet. yeah, time. Trying yes. to figure out when to squeeze that in on top of everything else is just. It sounds like a good idea, though, happens. for all of us to get together to learn together. Yeah. It would be great. Fun, yeah, that would be lots of fun. Time. We also have three year olds running around. We also yeah. have businesses to run and right. podcasts and television shows and yeah. shows. Um, so Memphis, Texas. How did you end up in Lynchburg? Cindy was from Lynchburg. Oh. I figured she was from further south. She just no. seemed like Southern Belle to me. She seemed uh, she, she was yeah, she was from Lynchburg. So when when we were living in Texas, she and Stan came to a very mutual parting of the ways. Uh, we're all still really great friends. And she had become my best friend. I mean, there was in that in that space between working and starting in the college market there was a lot of work just you know foundational work to put into place all the conferences that i needed to do and the contacts that i needed to make so i quit my job right after the christmas holidays in january and i didn't actually work again until the following january was when i got my first gig so that first year i was just beating the pavement trying to trying to put the show together, trying to make it work. Cindy was working um, and she would come over. She would come over every day for lunch and she would spend lunch with me. And she'd often bring, you know, swing by like Wendy's and pick me up a, a burger and she would come over and we would have lunch and I would eat this burger. And 
there were so many times when that's the only thing I had in a day. She never knew that. She never knew that her bringing me lunch was this might be the only thing that I was eating that day. But there were lots of days that that was the case because everything that I had was going in to putting to putting the show together. And 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 she just became my best friend. We were best friends. If you asked her, she would say we never dated because it was just we were just friends. And I am I fell in love and married my best friend. That's Aww, awesome, dude. That's that awesome. So when did she find out that she was keeping you alive? At what point did she find right? that out? No, not until after we were married. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. She was definitely so, keeping me Where alive. are you guys now? You were you were local boy done good. I mean, I was north of Charlottesville. So Lynchburg, you were in my backyard and you were this international yeah. star on the cover of magazines, traveling <laughs> the world. And then I heard you moved away. I mean, Arkansas. Arkansas. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. yeah my mom and dad, my mom and dad retired to Arkansas. And as they're getting older and I have a sister there. And so we, Cindy and I kept talking about wanting to get closer to them. But you know what it's like when you're doing 400 shows a year and your life is crazy. When are you going to find time to actually move? And, you know, COVID hit. And and I wasn't traveling. So we put our house on the market and sold our house and moved during the middle of COVID to get closer to my parents. Nice. Wow, that's good, man. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. People people don't understand that aspect of it. Um, I think some family thinks like, I don't know what they think, you know. Uh, can you come to the family reunion? No, we have shows. Can you come mm -hmm. to this year? No, we have shows. Can you come this year? No. Then they stop asking. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But I'm available. When is the when is the reunion? I could have made that one. Yeah. Keep asking. You know, yeah. it's just it's hard. It is hard. And I think that that's probably the hardest part. It's it's great that, you know, I I was really fortunate because I had Cindy. And so we were traveling together. It was, you know, you're with you're with the people that you love. When we when we left the college market to move into the performing arts market. I, I remember we had just done this second national showcase and a friend of mine who was an agent named uh, Liz Silverstein, uh, she came up to me after my after our showcase and she said, you don't belong here anymore in the college market. And I said, well, I don't know where to go. And she said, well, I know where you need to go. And she's the one that introduced me to the performing art industry. And I remember asking her, I said, would you represent me? And she said, oh, no, I, I'm fine art. I, I represent dance, modern dance and ballet and that sort of thing. And, and when I came into the performing arts industry, it was considered, magic was still kind of considered spectacle. So it was me. It was Harry Blackstone Jr. It was David Copperfield. And it was a magician out of Philadelphia called Landis. Um, I don't remember Landis's last name. I want to say Scott, but I'm not really sure. And he had, he was more of a children's kind of performer. Beautiful, beautiful show. And then, of course, we all knew who Harry and, and David were. And so I still had two years of college dates that were booked. So now I had this padding to start to bring myself into the performing arts industry. So I would, again, go to those conferences. I was self-represented, which is unheard of 
in the performing arts industry because if you're at that level, you if you're good, you're supposed to have an agent. That's the thinking. And I didn't want an agent. I didn't have an agent in the college market. I wanted to have those relationships with the buyers. So I wanted that same thing to happen in the performing arts world. So I started going to those conferences. I, I didn't book anything for three years. And I, I do remember uh, people would stop by and they would look. But, but this is that marketing thing. Everything changed. In the college market, we were the magic of of uh, Kevin Spencer. And then when we moved, when we got into the, and then I think in the college market, we may have at some point changed to the Spencer's magic. We did the Spencer's magic and illusion. But when we got into the arts market, we needed to change the perception of what magic was. So we called our show theater of illusion. It was no longer just the magic of Kevin and Cindy Spencer. It was, theater of illusion and now people would stop by and say tell me what this theater of illusion thing is and we would say it is a theatrical presentation of grand illusion that's what the show was and they would go well that sounds really interesting and so it, my third year was when somebody finally walked into my exhibit booth and they said so you've been here for three years i've seen you every year and i said yeah and he goes get a calendar let's see if we can find a date and so this guy booked a date and I didn't know it at the time, but he happened to be a pretty heavy hitter in the industry. And so once he booked us, everybody was like, did you see that? Steven booked those Spencer guys. And then that started kind of getting people's curiosity. I should go talk to them because Steven booked him. And, and mm -hmm. before you knew it, it just kind of started, it just started to roll and it allowed the show to just even continue to grow to the beast that it was when we retired. See, I think a lot of people can't wrap their head around those three years. You know, if you have a passion for it, that's what made you a success is you went three years with nothing. Yeah. You know, I did a 24 hour magic show for charity. I got nothing out of it. I got press. I got my name in the paper, <laughs> but I was raising money for the children's miracle network. Can I stand in front of your Walmart and just ask money for your charity and do magic to get, no, I went to the next Walmart. Can I? No, I had to ask 10 Walmarts. Could I ask to raise money for their charity for the Children's Miracle Network? I would be doing it for 24 hours straight. Spectacle, got the press, got the attention. Everybody went. It was a marketing. Everybody, Children's Miracle Network loved it. Walmart loved it. It was great PR for me. It was great all the way around. But it took 10 notes. People, yeah. people don't want people that. Don't, they yeah. get one or two no's, they're done. They want the instant. They you had three instant. years of no's. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Those overnight successes happen over years. <laughs> Not quite so yeah. overnight. You just have to all the hard work behind it. You know, and, and I, my faith is such an important part of my journey. Um, and, I, and I think in all of this, faith played a, such a huge role in the confidence of where I thought that we needed to be, you know, we just felt like this is what I should be doing. This is what I wanted to do. This is what I've always wanted to do. And I can remember, you know, growing up in Christianity, people saying, Oh, but it's magic, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and you think about that, right. There's a point at which you go, all right, well, you know, they keep saying that. What about, what about that? And I, I can remember somebody saying to me, you know, quoting me Psalms and saying, 
The Bible says that if you'll delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I said, okay, so tell me exactly, you know, I, I dove into those verses and I just can remember thinking, if I'm delighting myself in God, if I'm doing those things that God wants me to do, and this desire that I have to be in entertainment and to be a magician is not his desire for me, he's going to change that. Mm -hmm. If I'm delighting myself in the Lord, he's going to give me the desires of my heart because my desires are going to be his desires for me. And it didn't change. And so I went into this with this confidence that I knew it was going to be hard, but I was confident that this was the place I was intended to be, that God needs his people everywhere, in every situation, in every occupation to be a representative of who he is. And we do the best we can in those situations. And that was kind of what drove us. It was, we had a conviction that this is where we were supposed to be. I love that. Every theater show we do, we say a prayer. My little boys are with the babysitter. So it's just me, my daughter, and my wife. Mm -hmm. And we just ask that the audience sees him through us. Mm -hmm. That's Absolutely. it. Just let us have a great show. Make sure we do the switch. Okay, metamorphosis, don't trip. <laughs> and let them see him through us. That's all we can ask. And, right. you know, right. and thank you for this opportunity because every night I walk on stage, I am a seven-year-old kid, and I get to do this for a living, man. It's I, a blessing. I'm yeah. so happy. I'm so, but also, was magic like what we're doing in the Bible days? That's, it was a totally different thing, man. Totally different there, thing. There was yeah. no kid's birthday party magicians back then. <laughs> there was no Spencer's Art of Illusion back then. Yeah. That was totally different, man. Yeah. Right. yeah. Totally different. Yeah. You know, and and that's, and and there's, there's the conundrum, right? Because people want they, they want to be in a 21st century Christianity, but they want to pull us back to first or second century civilization. And it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work that way. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that that's, that's your prayer. You know, let us do everything we do to the glory of God. Let people see because of who I am on that stage. Let them see you. And I can tell you, as the as the show started to grow, and, and I there, there was a time in my career where it was like, holy smokes, what have I done? Um, you know, it was great when it was just me and Cindy. And then we hired a couple of people. And then we hired a couple more people. And then we hired a couple more people. And now you're on the road with people, which also means now you're on the road with a payroll. And you got a truck and you got a bus and you, you're hauling around 15 tons of equipment and, and your, your, your contract writer has gone from two pages to 36 pages. And now there's a hospitality writer that's connected to it. I mean, you know, it just got to the place where the only fun part of it was when you got to be on stage doing the show. Now I was so fortunate. Cindy and I were so blessed because we had a great crew. Our crew was, they were fantastic. They were so committed to, making me look good. You know, when I walked on that stage, it wasn't just me walking on that stage. I might be the only person you're looking at for two hours, but there was this whole group of people behind me who, whose only goal was to make me look good. And they worked very, very hard at that. 
And so I remember following those adventures on YouTube, you know, and I, I was just playing on it today, looking, looking and, you know, day off laundry day. And they just did a vlog in the laundry room. I mean, and then you'd stop and eat. And you went to the Alamo. I remember watching all that. <laughs> I was researching you, but I remember watching that 20 years ago and just following along. It was just awesome, man. So cool. I used to, my crew used to get so upset because I had a video camera in my hand all the time. I I still have probably twenty terabyte of video that nobody has ever seen, just of experiences on the road. I'll tell you a freak story. We were performing. We were on tour in the West, going across New Mexico, and again, this is just me. Uh, we're pulling into one of these truck stops in the middle of nowhere in dimming. I think it was dimming New Mexico. And I, I jump out of, you know, out of the bus, like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. And I run up to the fuel pump so that I can videotape the truck coming in right to get fuel. And I'm video <laughs> videoing all of this and the girls now go inside and I'm following them in. And this guy opens the door for them and go. So, I go in and as I go into the truck stop, this guy looks at me, he goes, did you get me on video? And I went, uh, he's the guy that held the door open. I said, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Is, is that a problem? He goes, no, 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 it's not a problem. I'm going to be famous someday. And I was like, oh, okay. So I walk on in and we're walking around. Now he's following me through the store. And he keeps asking me questions. So what do you guys do? What is that out there? And he's straightening things up on the shelves. So I figure he just works there. So now it's time for me to pay for the fuel. Everybody's heading back out. I get to the cashier and I, and I go, that guy you got working here is an interesting dude. And she goes, oh, he doesn't work here. I said, no. And she goes, no, he's been here for a couple of weeks. He came in and he bought a shovel and some tape. And he's just been around. So as I walk out the door, yes, as I walk out the door, he goes, don't forget, I'm going to be famous someday. And I said, and what are you going to be famous for? And he says, well, I've been burying bodies in the desert. Oh, no. Right. So now I've got all of this on video. So we get back in and now we're pulling out and I'm a little feeling a little weird about what just happened. Yeah. So now one of my guys takes the video camera and he puts it on me because I'm on the cell phone talking to the state police. And I say, I don't know what's going on. We just left this truck stop on I-10 just outside of Deming. There's this dude there who says he's been burying bodies in the desert. You might want to go check him out. So that's the last we heard of it. And when I actually, um, had, you know, cataloged that video, it's called Serial Killer in New Mexico. So now... Fast forward like 10 years and my wife calls me on the road and she says, are you watching the news? I'm like, no, what's going on? She goes, they're digging up bodies in New Mexico. I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, they're digging, they're digging up bodies in New Mexico. You need to turn on the news. So I turn on the news and sure enough, they're digging up bodies close to where we were. So she's like, I think you need to call the FBI. Well, that's a whole nother can of words when you're a magician calling the FBI. So I get on the phone with the FBI and I'm like, I'm calling about this dude that's, you're digging up these bodies in New Mexico. Well, who are you? So I tell him like, well, why were you out there? So I tell him, so now they transfer me to the next dude. And he's like, so who are you? And I'm a, I'm a magician, a magician. What were you doing in New Mexico? We were on tour. We were going to that. You're a touring magician. Right. Okay. 
So they finally get me to the guy and he goes, well, tell me what you got. And I said, well, I've just got this video of this weird guy. And he goes, you know about when it was? And I said, I, I don't. I said, maybe 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. And he goes, well, if you can find it, make me a copy and send it to me. So I get home, find it. I call him back and I goes, well, it was 2008. Now all of a sudden he's like, 2008? Can you overnight that to me? Oh so my. I, right. He said, because that falls more in the timeline of the decay of the bodies at this point. So I do burn him a copy. We overnight it to him. Turns out the dude that's on my video is the serial killer that they ended up like arresting in New Mexico. So. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I don't crazy, want anybody right? like that. I don't want anybody to like that. That doesn't, I don't like that. <laughs> oh my goodness. But we used oh to take, you know, we used to take all that video and we'd like edit it into these short little clips and then throw it up on YouTube. Wow. Oh, wow. Until my guys were like, quit putting all of us on YouTube. It's like, okay. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Dude, we've already went an hour. I haven't even talked about your new stuff. But listen, I love you. If you want to do this soon, We'll do a part two soon to tell everybody what you're doing nowadays. Yeah. That, sure. sounds good? that sounds great. I'd love we'll, to do that. We'll get you in the next couple of weeks. I promise. We'll, we'll make okay. it work. Um, sounds great. Where can everybody find you? Give us your uh, your YouTube. Give us your Facebook, Instagram, wherever you want to send people to right now. Sure. The website is simple. It's KevinSpencerLive.com. Uh, Instagram, MagicGuy2012. And awesome. Facebook is just Kevin W. Spencer. Nice. Kevin, we ended on dead bodies in this episode. I can't <laughs> wait to see what next episode comes up with. I never would have expected this, man. But I'm telling you, seriously, seriously, you have been an inspiration to me for my career. I love you like a brother. You've always been there. If I made a phone call, you've always answered it. I was a nobody. You took me like cop uh, like uh, Henning took you under his wing. And just treated me like a, a one of you guys. So I can't thank you enough. You are awesome. Kevin, thank you're you. great. Thank you, man. Thank and I'll get you on soon. We'll get you on soon for that second part. All right. Uh, part two. We'll do it. And uh, the only thing left we have to say is uh, see, see you next week. Check us out online at wesisley.com and patreon.com forward slash Wes underscore Isley for behind the scene videos, blooper videos, never-before-seen footage, discounts on merchandise, magic trick tutorials, and more. That's Wes Isley, spelled W-E-S-I-S-E-L-I. -S -S -E